Archbishop Desmond Tutu was the chairman of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and he's famous for saying many things, among which are the following words. To forgive is not just to be altruistic. It is the best form of self-interest. It is also a process that does not exclude hatred and anger. These emotions are all part of being human. You should never hate yourself for hating others who do terrible things. The depth of your love is shown by the extent of your anger. However, when I talk of forgiveness, I mean the belief that you can come out the other side a better person, a better person than the one being consumed by anger and hatred. Remaining in that state locks you into a state of victimhood, making you almost dependent on the perpetrator. On this episode of Modern Faith, we are going to be diving into forgiveness and different takes on forgiveness as inspired, if you will, by the forgiveness of Amber Geiger by Brant John. So thank you for being here and stay tuned. Welcome to Modern Faith, a podcast for the spiritual nourishment for today's millennial woman of color. I'm your host, Reverend Dr. Nichelle Guidry. Thanks for being here. So I am thoroughly looking forward to this episode. Um... And I wanted to produce this um, and to release it last week, but um, I noticed and I took heart um, to how um, contentious this was and how sensitive and raw so many of us were, um, not only from the actual acts of forgiveness and the subsequent evangelizing by the judge and the patting of the hair by the bailiff, but by the way that the um, sentencing went. And I think just from how all of it just kind of opened up the um, very deep and gaping wound that is at the heart of Black America um, that comes from the um, perpetuation um, and the longevity of institutionalized racism and state-sanctioned anti-Black violence. And so I said, you know, let me take my time with this. Let me be careful. Let me tread lightly and let me really do some work um, on this. And part of what I really want to do to frame this conversation is I want to say that what I'm about to share is not for those people of faith or otherwise who are not open to some new ways and new levels of thinking theologically. Um, I think uh, one of the uh, sore spots of having these sort of national upsets and being a liberation theologian is that you could be utilizing your voice to decry evil and to declare another way of of, of doing righteousness. Um, and then you have this like sort of like 
cacophony of conservative theological voices that are more um, that are more intent upon uh, tearing down their Christian kin than actually decrying the evil. I think that this is not for that person. The whole enterprise of modern faith is not for that person, but the the person that will get the most from this is for the people people like the ones I had conversations with this week who looked at um, Brant John's forgiveness and absolution of his brother's killer and said, it might have been the right thing to do, but something about this didn't sit well with me. It may have been the Christian thing to do, but it didn't, something about it felt, felt off. And um, I want to try to give the, the person who, who can only go so far as saying, this just doesn't feel right, some context about why it doesn't feel right. And I want to just affirm you that it doesn't feel right because it's not right. And there are many Christians who are taking this as an opportunity to actually erase what Bishop Tutu calls this very human spectrum of emotions. Um, And I just think Christians have a lot of work to do around uh, two things, bodies and feelings. (laughs) We've got something to say about both of these things, and it's never good. It's never good. And so I want us to kind of dive a little bit deeper. I want to give some context and I want to give some thoughts. Um, And one of the ways that I'm going to do this is, you know, I I was off and on from social media um, while all of this was happening. And I read a lot of things. I read a lot of articles and think pieces, um, but some of the most poignant insights came from some of the people that I follow on Facebook, um, colleagues of mine who really understand um, what's at stake when we do God talk in public spaces um, and people who understand that it is life and death. Um, as we as we see, you know, point blank in the case of Botham John. Let's go ahead and get it started. That was the hug heard around the country. And it was, for many of us, very, very shocking. And it was followed by the silent sermon uh, that was seen around the country And Lord Jesus, the whole scene was just troubling. And as someone who does public theology, I was troubled because here were three Black Americans laying loving and comforting hands and speaking words of absolution and forgiveness, passionately embracing, in the case of Brant John, and even evangelizing in the case of Judge Tammy Kemp, a white police officer who had just been convicted of murdering Botham John, a black man who was the brother to Brant John. And I am not a lawyer. 
And my understanding of the law and how it permits, continues to permit obvious racism and hatred are, it's just beyond my understanding. But I do want to say that I'm still not clear how this story of hers held up in court. It's an outrageous story um, of a woman, a white woman thinking she's walking into her apartment when in actuality she is trespassing into someone else's apartment. And I guess in her state of, of fear um, and in her imagination, seeing this black man, she became so afraid that she shot him and killed him. And I don't know how this story even held up in court because it just sounds ridiculous. <laughs> it just sounds like, hmm, this is really what we're on. Okay, great. But the, the saddest part of this story is that ultimately it ends with a young black man slain, um, killed in what was supposed to be the sanctuary of his own home, eating some ice cream and... Last Tuesday, his killer, um, Amber Geiger, was actually convicted. Um, she was convicted to the surprise of many. And I remember seeing um, the recording of the sentencing. And um, for as much as the judge wanted and tried to contain the emotional reaction inside the courtroom, what she couldn't contain was the the shouts and the of cheers and celebration that came from outside the courtroom and it was a little bit of a delay but it was very obvious that when this crowd heard that the guilty verdict had come down there was celebration and shouting in the streets that while many people were celebrating there was also a sense of um sort of marking time and holding our breath um to the next day when the killer cop was was sentenced. And when she was sentenced, she got 10 years with a mandatory minimum of five. And it was a mixed reaction um, because on one hand, wow, like we've been trying to get a conviction on something like this for years. And we we lived through Trayvon and we lived through Tamir Rice and we lived through Walter Scott and we lived through so many. The list goes on. We lived through Laquan McDonald. We lived through Eric Garner. We lived through Betty Jones. We lived through the the list goes on and there was never a conviction. And it seemed like these white police officers were getting away with murdering our our kinfolk just with absolute impunity. And so there was a sense of, wow, this is what justice looks like and what it may feel like for a moment. And then to have the, you know, bare minimum um, sentence, um, you know, for the for the person who was convicted, you know, it's it really was just another way of sending the message that justice just is if or when it ever comes down to black people, it's always going to look different. It's always going to look different. And so mixed reactions at the at the sentencing, but it 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 was what happened after the sen the sentencing that <laughs> that has really just been on my heart and on the heart of many. Um and really just kind of boggled my mind. And I genuinely think that there is no simple 
There is no expedient explanation for this. There's there's no expedient explanation for for this, there's a lot of different angles. There are a lot of different layers. Um, and to see the reactions and to read the reactions, I think there's so many people grappling with what the reverberating effects of watching this unfold are really going to be. Um, and what I'm talking about is during the victim statements, the brother of Botham John, you know, got into the witness stand and was like, hey, I don't even know if my family's going to agree with this, but I forgive you. I think it's what my brother would want us to do. And it's the Christian thing to do. And I'm paraphrasing. And then he turn, turns to, to the judge and asks, may I give her a hug? And he's starting to cry. His voice is cracking. He says, please, May I give her a hug? And the judge is like, yes, you can give her a hug. And it's it's really to watch it. It's it, it I, I hmm. Who I felt very. There were I still I as you can see, as you can hear, I'm still struggling because it was disturbing it was disturbing to see the the way that they ran at each other it was disturbing to see her bury her face in in this young black man's um you know embrace and she's visibly weeping and he's visibly weeping and his hands are getting eerily close to her backside and I'm in my head I'm like I can't believe this is happening and then the next thought I'm like but your hands better not move any lower on this woman or else you are about to be next little black boy like this was a disturbing scene and then who the judge dismounts her seat she leaves the courtroom comes back with her Bible. She then proceeds to begin to witness to the convicted killer. She is reading John three sixteen to her. She's telling her, you know, it's time to get your life right. You know, you made a mistake, but you know, whatever, whatever. And then she gives her a hug. Then the bailiff, another black Law enforcement official is patting the woman on her head. And the whole scene is, it, I literally felt like I was in the movie. Like, I, how, am I in a twilight zone? Like, how does something like this happen in a court of law? I know I am not the only one. I felt like my emotions and my blackness was, I mean, basically assaulted. It was, it was too much to see all of these people deflecting to comfort this convicted killer. And subsequently, there were a lot of reactions and rightfully so. It was surprising. It was jarring. It was upsetting. It was disturbing. People were all out pissed. I not only read online, but I was in conversations. 
it was really um it was really something and as someone who has been in a lot of academic spaces this is going to be fodder for many lectures and many classroom discussions um in many seminaries for some time to come because what we can't ignore is the um, very, very obvious religious theological sort of framing of all of this, right? Um, and so I want to start here on the forgiveness piece. And what I want to say is that there was a time in my life where I might have done something really similar when I believed that it was the right Christian thing to do, to just forgive and turn my cheek and allow my the perpetrator of some act of violence against me to do it again and then turn again and let them do it again and just keep forgiving. There, because I think this is the sort of popular theology that is distilled in many of our faith communities. Um, again, we're not really taught to access the full range of our emotions. Um, and so I think we often cut across the field to forgiveness because um, it absolves us of having to do the work of grappling with how we really feel, processing how we really feel, and healing from how we really feel. Although we know that forgiveness, much like grief, is a process. As I already signified with the quote in the beginning, of the episode, but this young man is was probably doing what he thought was the right thing to do. And Reverend Tracy Blackman, who is the executive minister for um, justice, I want to say is her title. I might be wrong. Sorry, Reverend Tracy, if I got your title wrong, you are amazing. In the United Church of Christ, which is my denomination, she wrote something really poignant along this line um, on her Facebook wall the day that all of this happened. She says, this is just me. The judge is fair game. The bailiff is fair game. The black church, because some of us have absolutely no nuance in that at all, <laughs> is fair game. But whatever an 18-year-old male child whose brother was murdered privately and publicly and who has lived through that and the trial has to do to keep getting up every day while his heart and mind and spirit come to terms with his reality deserves some grace. Can we forgive him for not being what we need him to be while he is grieving? If not, I pray he will forgive us too. And you know, Reverend Tracy, she pastors me from Facebook. <laughs> There's many, many, I've had many occasions where she has offered a perspective that's actually caused me to check myself um, and, and check my perspectives. Um, and this was one of those times because I think, you know, what, what I, what I think I hear, I understand her to be saying here is that, you know, if this is what he feels is necessary for him to continue to get up every day and survive, then far be it for us to critique um, his decision and to to critique his display. And so I think that um, there are many of us who are grappling with 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 that. Um, 
And I think that if many of us, particularly in my field where many of us have been formally trained theologically, I think that if some of us were to sit and really think about who we were before we gained a, a lens of liberation, we might have done the same thing. However, because his personal decision was made and performed very publicly, and because this scene played out so publicly, we are allowed, we are even compelled to deal with it and to discuss the logic behind it, the history that supports it, the evil that it enables and the theology that sanctioned it because this was a choice that was made because this person felt that it was the right thing to do as a Christian. And that is, to me, easy Christianity that does not see the inherent issue in the scenario, the issue of racism, the issue of white supremacy and white fragility, the pillaging of Black men and Black communities by quote, afraid white women, and how all of this has become so deeply, deeply entrenched in the problematic, demoralizing, and dehumanizing history of this country, particularly the religious history of this country. And as I said, I encountered many reactions. I was absolutely throughout the day I was consumed with with following this story. Um, and one of the reactions that I read came from Bishop Edward J. Burns, who is the Bishop of the Catholic Diocese of Dallas. And one of the things that this brother had to say was this. In a statement, he wrote, what an incredible example of Christian love and forgiveness we witnessed during the victim impact statement as Botham John's brother Brandt gave, forgave Amber Geiger, encouraged her to turn her life over to Christ and gave her a hug. He said it was what Botham would have wanted. I pray we can all follow the example of this astounding young man. Let us pray for peace in our community and around the world. Yeah, I'm sure that that's what Bishop Burns wants for people to do. Because as long as people are doing that and not demanding answers and accountability, people like Amber Geiger don't have to change. In fact, it's not only that the system allows for the, the continued proliferation of this type of violence, but if the system allows it and the people allow it, then there is absolutely no incentive to change that behavior. There is no incentive to repent. And that's what repentance is. Repentance is not just an apology. Repentance literally is a turning around. Repentance is a transformation of behavior, a transformation of heart that manifests in a change of behavior. And if there's no accountability, there's no incentive to repent. And so, of course, the bishop wants people to, to follow the model of Brand John. <laughs> but there was another side. Black people have often deferred to white comfort over 
their own humanity. Many black people don't want to upset white folks. They don't want to discomfort them, offend them. And so many will choose the slow death that comes from acquiescing to our own dehumanization. Many will uphold and serve the interests of white people to their own detriment. We will, quote, secure, unquote, our place in this white supremacist power orbit while leaving other black people hanging out to dry. This has happened in many ways, including in entertaining white people while reifying racist stereotypes. This has come from black people, quote, pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps unquote, um, ascending the ranks of power and somehow forgetting that their mothers and their fathers and their aunties and the communities that raised them were black. They then go on to enable the passing of legislation that underscores the supremacy of white people. They make money off of black cultural forms, but they utilize their platforms to hail people who are actively trying to kill us. Hi, Kanye. And while many people might deal with their demons privately, when it happens publicly, it often has ripple effects of triggering and re-traumatizing and enraging. Why? Because when the personal becomes public, it also becomes political. And what does that mean? It It means that it becomes demonstrative of particular ways of being, It becomes illustrative of these age-old tropes that continue to plague and dehumanize Black communities. And it becomes instructive. They become teaching moments that we can analyze and that we can learn from. Which, in my opinion, is why people who do not agree with Brant John's decision to forgive and his public display of forgiveness why people who don't agree with that are well within our rights to critique that moment. And while many of us grant that he is also well within his rights to do and say as he pleases to forgive whoever he wants, we can and we must trouble the logic behind and the history that's reinscribed and the theology that supports that very public moment that literally went rippling throughout the country. And so we read that moment. We read that moment. And so I have a couple of um, perspectives um, that have come out of um, that reading. And the first one that I want to um, lift up is that we often turn to forgiveness as a knee-jerk reaction to trauma. And Reverend uh, Naomi Washington Leapart wrote something on her Facebook that I thought was really powerful about forgiveness as a trauma response. That we forgive when we've been traumatized. And I wrote something on my Facebook that had a similar sort of, um, I was pointing in a similar direction about how making haste to forgive is not a Christian mandate, particularly when that haste does not sanction our right to a process of grieving, mourning, and healing and forgiving. We often defer to forgiveness 
when we haven't been permitted to actually undergo and undertake and take a journey to forgiveness. And it and the thing about that journey is that it often includes some emotions and experiences that many people have often associated or long considered to be non-Christian. It 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 requires us to be angry. It requires us to be even if it is for a moment hateful. It requires us to be enraged. And and it's in the suppression of those emotions that we begin to dehumanize ourselves, denying ourselves the the space and denying ourselves the liberty and denying ourselves the healing that comes when our emotions are allowed to be uh, uh, distilled. And when we allow them to come through and to do what they're supposed to do, we miss out on the process. And so sometimes rather than actually going and dealing with the trauma and healing from the trauma, we act like the trauma is not there. And we say, I forgive you. When the truth is really what we want to say is, what were you on with that? What drove you to do that? Do you recognize the weight of what you've done? Do you realize the destruction? Do you realize that because of the actions that you've taken, my loved one is no longer here? How does that make you feel? Do you realize the damage that you have done? When we cut across the field to forgiveness, we don't allow ourselves to say, I'm pissed. I'm angry as hell. And F all these people out here that are trying to make me forgive somebody who I can't forgive right now. There are theologies of grace and forgiveness and um, many of them have um, really under emphasized the place of lament and the place of grief and mourning and meaning making in forgiveness. Um, it's really dehumanized so many people. I, I, I know I continue to use that word, but I genuinely think that that's what happens when we're not allowed to fully express and to fully experience the full range of emotions that trauma elicits, we become a little less human. And Christians are often, um, we're, we're, we're socialized, we're, we're trained to um, be forgiving as, as Christ forgave and God's forgiven you. So why can't you forgive? And, you know, I think that there is, thank God for grace, for God's grace and thank God for God's forgiveness. But somewhere in the doctrine and somewhere in the theology, what we need to talk about is that I am not God. I'm not God. I am God's child and I aspire to God-like qualities. 
And I'm grateful for the model of Jesus because the model of Jesus lets us know that we don't have to do that. We don't have to cut across that field. In fact, there's a there's a point to the distinction between God and, and the ones who are to be like God. There's a distinction, and I'm going to get to that. So these theologies of grace and forgiveness have often um, hurt Black people. They have often hurt women, particularly those who have survived sexual assault. They've often, um, they've just hurt high-risk communities because what they often underscore is the importance of repentance and remorse. It often, often these theologies of forgiveness, um, they place so much emphasis on the victim and really um, undermine the role of the perpetrator in creating the whole circumstance to be forgiven. And the other piece that what I think was that I read a lot about was um, absolution versus accountability. Absolution is um, a, a theological term that means not only is an offense forgiven, but it is washed away. It's taken away. And it, it can easily be read that in his performance of forgiveness and his embrace of, 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 of his brother's killer, that there was absolution that took place. In fact, their father took it a step further and said, I'd actually like to be friends with her. I'd actually like to be friends with the woman who killed my son. And to both of these men, you know, God bless you because it might turn out a second coming that many of us are wrong and you're right. <laughs> and in which case I, you know, I will just have to say to my maker, I, you know, I couldn't do that. I, I couldn't do that. But the, the, the interesting pivot was when the mother of Botham John uh, at a press conference soon after all of this happened, you know, she represented a polar opposite um, perspective than her son. You know, she was like, no, I don't forgive her. Matter of fact, she called her the devil and said, I will not let this woman off the hook, nor will I let off the hook the system that she represents. I am calling for a more in-depth investigation by the Dallas Police Department as a result of what has taken place here today. She was not happy with that sentence and she did not agree with her son. And I think it's harder for many Black people to hold people and systems accountable. It's a lot more precarious to hold people accountable than it is to absolve them. But I'll say this, between the two of them, only one has a chance to yield some transformation, and that is accountability. And to me, that is the reason why so many Christians loved this scenario. And so many white people loved this scenario. And after I put my comments out there, y'all better believe I was trolled. And 
And it's because when the approach of Brant John is taken, it doesn't compel or it doesn't demand anybody to change. So how how do we how do we hold broken systems and their agents accountable without being angry? And Desmond Tutu in the opening quote, he's like, you know, it's perfectly normal and very righteous to allow those feelings to work themselves out. But what you don't ever want to become is the person that stays there. How do we move through that process without being detrimentally angry? Because I think um, as the, the prophet James Baldwin has already let us know, to be black in America means that you can live with a, a certain sustained volume of anger. How do we not um, cross the point of being and becoming detrimentally angry? Um, I believe that it comes through taking the journey and the process of forgiveness. Not rushing to forgiveness, but allowing ourselves the grace, giving ourselves the grace to go through the full range and the full spectrum of anger, rage, grief, processing, meaning making, and understanding that this process, like many others, is not linear. It is not even circular. It's is sort of like an amoeba. It can take some shape that there's no name for. But that's just the process. That's how it goes sometimes. And when we do forgive, it's not the same as reconciliation. And when we reconcile, there's really no reconciliation if there's no correction of the wrong. Which to me, ultimately, is why I feel like Amber Geiger should have gotten more than 10 years. And at the end of the day, she's probably only going to do that mandatory minimum of five. But what she did cost a man his life, a young man his life. And to come out at the end of it, you know, she still has hers. (laughs) And five years from now, she's going to just resume business as usual. So I don't... I don't know um, if reconciliation would even be possible in a scenario like this. The next thing that I think that we need to do is we need to tend to each other. Um, I have a pastor on the, online and her name is Reverend Dr. Melva Sampson. And on her Facebook, she told a story of... Um, her first year in seminary and she was in this class and they were reading this book called the um, de-radicalization of black religion by gay Roddus Wilmore. And um, she told the story of one of the class sessions and I just want to read her story in her words. During one class session, we were discussing a film clip along with a chapter from the book. The class was racially diverse. While I no longer remember the specifics of the discussion, I remember a life-altering moment about white women's tears and Black folks' need to absolve their pain while overlooking their own in the name of forgiveness. A white woman was overcome with guilt about her privilege. 
She assaulted the class with her tears. This was new for me. I hadn't yet developed the language to articulate what was happening. She was so distraught that she ran out of the room into the bathroom. After a few minutes, yep, you guessed it, your girl, that would be me, left my seat and ran after her. While in the bathroom, I listened with concern and I let her wet and clammy face rest on my shoulder. I stroked her red bob cut hair and told her that it was okay. I wiped her foggy glasses clear and I passed her tissue for a runny nose. We finally returned to class. I felt that I had done the will of God. I felt that I had helped my neighbor. I felt that I had shown compassion. I did not know, but in a few minutes, my classmate would make sure that from then on, I would never forget and I haven't. It was the impetus of my journey of radicalization. In a paraphrase, she said, with all of the rage of our ancestors, you ran so hard to see after Miss Anne that you didn't think that any of the sisters in the room needed attending to. She said, what about us? What about black women's tears? What about our pain? What about our hurt? Who is there to receive our rage? For the rest of the class, she and other black men and women proceeded to give me their necessary the business. When I saw the black woman judge and the black woman bailiff hugging and stroking Amber, I thought of the lesson that she and others gave to me that day. I thought, who is hugging Bob's mother? I thought, where are the gestures of compassion for her? The only picture I saw of Ms. John was with her hands lifted to the air and tears streaming down her face. Who runs to hug our daughters, mothers, and sons? I have to end here because I'm experiencing trauma visible in my own salty tears and the fact that no religious or legal system deems my tears worthy enough to catch. Ashe, Pastor. And I think that if many of us are, are honest once again, we have also had the experience where we felt like I need to do the right thing and go see about this other person and go see about the white person to make sure that the white person is okay. While in fact, our family, our brothers, our sisters, our kinfolk are living in the distress of blackness. And as I read Dr. Sampson's words, I thought of the many stories in my life prior to my own radicalization and politicization that I was that one. And I too had to repent because in all of the stories that I remembered, there was someone who looked like me that I could have tended to. So I think that that's a big part of our own, our healing is seeing to the healing and the mending of our community, our communities, the people in our lives. It's a beautiful and radical kind of thing that something so simple as checking on the people you love can be a radical act of resistance. 
checking to see if they are okay, calling to see if they need anything, being there when life isn't happening the way that it should be for them, when things aren't coming together, when they're living in the afterglow of loss and devastation and all the other things that can happen on any given day in Black life. And I think that ultimately what happens, um, as I think Bishop Tutu kind of alludes to, is you come out on the other side of it having let it go. And many Black people know what it means to have to let things go um, and have to forgive things that there's never an apology for. But just because you let it go doesn't mean that they're off the hook. It just means that What's coming to them isn't necessarily coming from you. It means that we serve a God of justice. Who's keeping tabs on the affairs of our lives. I want to end by talking about the model of Jesus as he hung from the cross. And I want to use this as I want to lift this up to people who are listening to this, who might have a hard time with this notion that I have to be forgiving and I have to make a hasty act of forgiveness in order to be a Christ follower. Well, let me lift this up to you. From the cross, every Good Friday in Black churches, we gather for what many people call the seven last words. And the second to last word is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it's a beautiful moment. And I believe when I was still working at the church in Chicago, I heard um, I heard someone say this. And, and I've heard several people say it since. But it was a watershed moment for me that has really freed me. And I pass it on to you. That after everything that Jesus went through, everything that he went through with those religious people from the first encounter up until that moment and what he went through with Judas and what he went through with Peter and all the other people who might not have even made it into the story that 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 um, had something to do with his crucifixion. While he's on that cross, he says, Father, forgive them. God, forgive them for they know not what they do. And what is so powerful about what Jesus says is, I need you to forgive them because I'm not sure that I can. It lets us know that maybe it's not always our job to do the forgiving. Maybe there are scenarios in which it's God's job to forgive. Maybe there are scenarios in which we should put the work of forgiving in God's hands. And one of the next things that Jesus says is, I, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And when, what happens when we can put those who have hurt us, who have offended us, who have traumatized us in God's hands, and we put ourselves in God's hands, that's where the healing happens. So to those of you who are working through some act of forgiveness, 
I want to commend you to be like Jesus and let your process happen. Let your healing happen. And in the moment, if forgiveness is not what you have to give, let God be the one to forgive. While God also works on you. Thank you for listening to this episode. I think the next episode will be a little bit lighter. But I want to thank you for hanging in there with me. And I hope that this was a blessing. Until next time, y'all, keep the faith. We've come to the end of this episode of Modern Faith. Thank you so much for tuning in. And please take just a second to rate and subscribe to Modern Faith on all of your preferred podcasting platforms and check us out on the web to be able to contact us and find more information at modernfaithpodcast.com. Thanks again for tuning in. And until next time, keep the faith.